When will this seminar be over? Why did I get a PhD if I can't even understand half the jargon in this talk? The x-axis on that graph isn't even labeled. Also, to the person who just asked a question, that wasn't a question. It was a statement. Maybe if I just close my eyes for a minute, this will go by faster. Uh, wake up. Rat woman, can you hear me? Can you hear me, rat woman? What? What's going on? It's no use. It keeps shedding its tail. So many blizzards. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Komodo dragons can't do that. Who cares? Listen to me, rat woman. We need you to summon a swarm of furry Christmas island rats now. It's the only way to defeat Komodo. Look out. I can do this all day. Oh, Now's the time. Call them now, Rat Woman. Call them now. Ah, I summon the power of CRISPR critters far and wide. That's it. You're doing it now. Now. Come on, just a little further. Now. Oh, science. You're listening to Nice Genes, a show all about unraveling the fascinating world of genomics, sponsored by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, and as your guide and former rat researcher, I'm reclaiming my superhero name of Rat Woman today as we dive into the heroic world of genomics. All right, let's be real. You might be wondering, what the heck was that all about? And let me preface this by saying it came out of the fabulous and fantastical mind of our producer, Sean, who joins me now to help explain why we're opening with a superhero-inspired intro. Hey, Sean. Hey, Kaylee, how are you doing? Oh, you know, pretty good. Uh, What was that all about? Okay, to start off, I am not a biologist, if that wasn't already clear. <laughs> but while working on nice genes, I've been pouring through really interesting papers, articles, as well as videos on genomics. Uh-huh. And honestly, there have been a lot of moments that have blown my mind. And many have focused on actual genetic tricks and special abilities that exist out in our big animal and plant kingdoms. Hmm. Some of which are what I would call actual superpowers. Stuff that's embedded in the genome of many living things. Special characteristics that my non-biology background looks at and says, wow, that is something I wish I could do. And at the heart of all these special abilities are mutations. Okay, so you naturally thought that we should take what's usually sitting over here in sci-fi and reel it into our actual science podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, when you put it like that. Um, but yes, naturally. <laughs> so to start on this X-Men-inspired journey, my fellow producers and I hit the streets to ask one simple question. If you had a superpower, what would it be? You never know. Maybe one of them is actually possible. If I could have a superpower, and what would it be? I would want to be invisible so that I could go and listen to what people are saying about me behind my back. 
If I could have any superpower, it would be to read minds. If I had a superpower, it would probably be to travel in time. Probably flying because A, gas prices, and I love aerial views, so it would just be good for my wallet and for my mental health. Okay, so flying is a popular power, and why not? Have you seen airplane tickets today? Womp womp. What I didn't expect when it came to discussing mutations is folks actually don't always have the most favorable view of them. Um, I think a genetic mutation is when you get like an extra like limb, like, a li- like an extra foot or an extra finger or like an extra eye. And I don't think they're good. I, I guess like a mutation is kind of like when something goes wrong, right? Like when something goes awry. Well, it can be anything from a facial feature to something in your like a heart valve missing. Ah, I see where this is going. Yeah, so in our mission to bust some genomic myths, I think it's time we set the record straight. Let's give these genetic variations the moment in the sun they deserve, and let's think of some of them as our heroic mutations. When it comes to genetic mutations, both Sean and I have a few things to learn about what these tiny changes in our DNA can mean for an organism. One, two, three. I'm testing. I'm testing. So I spoke with Dr. Brian Arnold, but do you have a preference for being called Dr. Arnold throughout? Please, Brian, Brian, yeah. He's a data scientist at Princeton University, as well as an evolutionary biologist with the Shane Campbell Staten Group. And he knows a lot about genetic mutations. Brian, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. In the spirit of today's episode, where we're going to be talking about genomics, mutations, and superheroes, and um, has anyone ever told you that your whole, like, glasses vibe is very Clark Kent? uh, Yes, actually. Uh, I think (laughs) people have told me before that uh, I resemble uh, Clark Kent or mini Clark Kent because I'm only 5'6". So, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your research background and what's the link to genetics? My background uh, has always revolved around evolutionary biology, genetics, and computer science. So I did my PhD at Harvard University in the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology. DNA can tell a lot of stories about a population. It can shed light on which genes or regions of the genome have recently experienced natural selection and allowed that population to adapt to new environments, among among other things. So there are a couple of stories I want to cover with you regarding mutations and sort of the stories that our DNA tells. So from the perspective of an evolutionary biologist, what are mutations in our DNA? So all life consists of cells. Bacteria consist of a single cell. Eukaryotes, like humans, consist of multiple cells that are this like beautiful collaboration that allows the emergence of other traits like intelligence. Cells need to divide. Every time they divide, they basically have to copy their genome and bring it to different sides of the cell, and then the cell splits. The proteins that are involved in copying the genome are not perfectionists. They have some low rate of committing an error. And so when a cell divides, the daughter cell that it gives rise to might have a perfect copy, but more often than not, there are a few differences. And I think, you know, for instance, in humans, we have on average 70 mutations 
that distinguish us from our parents. You, you, you might think that these mutations are, are bad, but in, in rare circumstances, they are beneficial. Is it possible that they also don't do anything? Can they also be neutral? A vast majority are either neutral, slightly deleterious, and some are highly deleterious. And then an even smaller amount are beneficial. But again, it's almost like going into your computer and switching around some of the components and expecting it to, you know, suddenly function more optimally. One of them might be beneficial, and then evolution is kind of the engineer that selects for these beneficial mutations. If we have all these cells in our body that are splitting constantly and we have these errors, you know, how do these mutations become heritable? How is it that I then pass mutations on to, say, my offspring or or an organism does that? What's the difference there? So heritable in, in humans, heritable changes involve mutations that occur in our germline cells. We have a bunch of cells in our body. Some of them I'll refer to as somatic, like the, the cells in my hand, and some of them are in uh, my, my germline. So in humans, these would correspond to mutations in the organs that produce egg and sperm. So if I acquire a mutation in you know my hand or in a hair follicle, that mutation won't necessarily be passed on. But if it's in one of my uh, germline cells, then I will absolutely pass those on to my offspring. Brian's understanding of mutations took him to a truly fascinating area of research and to another continent. A buddy from his days back at Harvard came to him with a question, one that would set him on quite the little adventure. And I'll never forget this. I was in a climbing gym. Uh, climbing is quite popular in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I got this text message from Shane. Shane Campbell-Staten, his friend. He's just like, hey, do you want to come to Mozambique with me and study elephants? 100% yes. 100% yes. <laughs> and when I followed up with him about, you know, what the particular question was, he had recently saw on YouTube a video of tuskless elephants and how this phenomenon of tusklessness has been present in African elephants for a long period of time, but in some regions, uh, it has increased dramatically in frequency. And so he was thinking, I wonder if we could find which mutations are causing this feature in elephants that's literally changing the face of the world's largest land animal. Neither of us had worked on elephants before. We need to work with elephants now. We need to get genetic material. How do we do this? Uh, it was not easy especially in Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, which is where uh, we decided our study population would be. The elephants are, sometimes they're tricky to find, but even when you do find them, they can be a little aggressive towards humans because there was this Mozambican civil war and survivors of that war kind of have passed on culturally to their offspring to kind of fear humans. So our original plan was to drive around the park and find elephants and kind of hang out at a safe distance with binoculars and just observe them and wait for them to defecate and then keep track of who defecated where such that we knew where a tusked elephant pooped and where a tuskless elephant pooped. So that was our original plan to get elephant DNA. And, you know, we spun this idea by some of the other scientists there who had much more experience than us. And the looks on their faces weren't promising. After a week and a half of driving around the park, 
for six to eight hours a day, we could not find even a single elephant. We found tons of poop everywhere, um, but never did we see a live elephant that we could observe pooping so that we know the DNA sample came from a tuskless or tusked elephant. So yeah, after about a week and a half, you know, we were kind of driving around and we weren't really saying much to each other. I kind of felt like we both knew that things weren't going well, but we weren't quite ready to admit that because we had invested so much into the project at this point. In Gorongosa, that had been an unexpectedly wet summer. And so, you know, water was everywhere. And so the animals were quite dispersed. The grass was really high. We could really only see 15 feet to either side because there's what's called elephant grass, which was literally 20 feet high. It can it completely obscures all wildlife, even elephants. So reality slowly started setting in that this wasn't going to work out. So we were brainstorming ideas about kind of what we could do moving forward. And there were some behavioral ecologists working at the park. They were putting um, tracking collars on elephants to monitor their movement throughout the park and also trying to study how elephants might interact with the neighboring communities, kind of like elephant-human conflict. So, you know, at dinner one night with, with these scientists, we were asking them, so, you know, when you are in your helicopters tranquilizing elephants to put collars on, would it be possible to only target females? Because this phenomenon of tusklessness is only present in females. Male elephants always have tusks. And they're like, yeah, sure. Beautiful. Cool. Uh, could you get a blood sample for us? And they were like, absolutely. We have a veterinarian on staff at the site when the collar is being put on. So we'll just take a blood sample. Cool. Uh, also, could you target equal numbers of tuskless and tusked elephants? Totally fine with it. And so that's when the study kind of actually began. So when you put a collar on an elephant... Uh, you know, typically there's someone in a helicopter with a tranquilizer gun, and they try to shoot the elephant in the in the hip, in the upper part of the leg, and then it goes to sleep. And there's a ground team that quickly drives in. I was on the ground, and, and there are also, you know, Mozambican scientists there who are working at the park. They can identify individual elephants based on their marks and scars, various traits. And, you know, we try to quickly collect as much data as we can as quickly as possible, and then the veterinarian injects some kind of reversal that reverses the effect of the tranquilizer so that the elephant can immediately wake up. What was the feeling you and Shane had in this moment in front of this elephant, besties, <laughs> studying this animal together? Just kind of surreal, to be honest. If, if, like, it happens so fast. I mean, you're in and out, and you're trying to move as quickly as possible. These these animals are just incomprehensibly big. I mean, I knew they were big, but when you see them, you know, up close and personal, uh, at least that close, it was truly humbling to kind of have any part in studying their their history. They're absolutely marvelous creatures. Ultimately, you gather the samples from these elephants. And what did you discover when you took those blood samples back to the lab? What was the finding? What was the answer to the text message question? So when we got back from um, Gorongosha National Park, we had a variety of data. We observed that 
in the, the civil war in Mozambique caused the elephant population there to decline by about tenfold. And we observed that the frequency of tusklessness more than doubled throughout the war mm. and can only be explained by differential survival or natural selection, in which elephants with tusks were less likely to survive the war because they were more likely to be targeted by poachers. So for every tusk elephant that was killed or poached, five tusked elephants died. And so, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, that's a huge advantage. So one day, Shane and I were reading the literature about dental abnormalities in humans, and we came across these examples that were only present in females, and this piqued our curiosity. So anatomically, elephant tusks are teeth. They're basically lateral incisors that just keep on growing. And in these examples of humans that we found, the, the reason that the dental abnormalities were only present in females is because it involved a mutation on the X chromosome that was lethal to males. So you never observe males harboring the abnormality because they just, you know, die super early in development, such that you never get the chance to observe them. You know, for instance, it would be a, a miscarriage. Okay. So they're not even born. It's fatal. That That's one example of a, a male lethal mutation. Absolutely. So, boom, we got this idea. If this were the case in elephants, then the tuskless moms should give rise to significantly more female offspring than male offspring. And when we analyzed these data, our jaws dropped. We could not believe when we observed that tuskless mothers gave rise to significantly more female offspring to a degree that we would expect if they were harboring a male lethal mutation on the X chromosome. The way I think about it is this mutation is on the X chromosome and it has two effects. One is that it's dominant for tusklessness, meaning you only need one copy to be tuskless, but it's recessive for lethality, meaning you need to have both copies mutated in order for the, recess, the, the recessive lethal feature of the mutation to be expressed. But males only have one X chromosome. So if they have one copy, this recessive lethal feature of the mutation gets expressed, they die. But females, on the other hand, they have two copies of the X chromosome. So when they inherit one of these mutations, they express the dominant tuskless phenotype, but they do not express this recessive lethality aspect of the mutation because they have another copy of the X chromosome that does not have this mutation. This is so interesting. So, I mean, females then can really never have that that lethality because the males can't have one copy, so they never get the copy from from the male parent. So smart. Absolutely. It took Wild. me a while to figure that out. And yeah, you got it immediately. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I didn't do the research. You did just kind of spoon feed that to me. So <laughs> thanks, though. That's why I got a PhD. <laughs> This is a story where humans have put a pressure on elephants. One where being an elephant without tusks was an evolutionary advantage, which meant that you were more likely to survive and have adorable little female tuskless babies. So in this case, sometimes mutations are a bit like superpowers. They're kind of like an invisibility cloak. So we can see how mutations can improve things like survival, 
Brian, are there other examples of mutations that are literally a lifesaver or had a quote-unquote heroic result? So in terms of life-saving mutations, I guess a lot of examples that I think of are related to humans. They have allowed humans to adapt to environments that have lower concentrations of oxygen. So uh, the scientific term for this would be uh, hypoxia, which is a condition where there's not enough oxygen in your system for your tissues to properly function. And so there are two such environments that I can think of that humans have adapted to. There's this community in Indonesia called the Bahau, and they have been engaging in breath hold diving for thousands of years. And genetic analyses of their genomes have shown that they've adapted to acute hypoxia from diving and hunting for food underwater by having enlarged spleens, which is an organ that contracts in response to the dive stimulus to provide kind of an oxygen boost through releasing red blood cells. And another example is adaptation to high altitude, in which there's also lower oxygen. And in this case, sequencing the genomes of Tibetans has shown, even though they're living at such a high altitude, they have no such increase in red blood cell count. And it's it's not ideal to have a higher red blood cell count because that makes your blood a little more viscous and it kind of can put strain on your circulatory system and can even, you know, complicate pregnancies. So the fact that Tibetans are able to live with ease at this altitude with a normal blood cell count is kind of evidence that they've adapted to this new environment. But what are the genomic wonders and villains of mutations? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, and I have a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the show, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And continue the fight for genomic myth-busting by taking yourself off mute, Asian, and telling a friend about us. We thank you. And so do the tuskless elephants. They're really into podcasts. For this next segment, I want to dive into another fascinating real-life superpower. I jump in the water, and the water is warm because it's the tropics, and the water is clear. That's Dr. Maria Pia Miglietta. She's a marine and evolutionary biologist based at Texas A&M University. And she's taking us down into the warm ocean depths of Bocas del Toro in Panama. And there is silence and there is just the noise of your bubbles as you breathe in and breathe out. And it's peaceful. Above all, it's extremely peaceful. And you can really focus. You have one task. And, you know, there can be a big fish, there can be a beautiful animal swimming by... I don't even look at them. I'm focused on the tiny, tiny things on the rocks. Dr. Miglietta needs to have a keen eye because she's searching for one tiny little fella about the size of your pinky nail. Right, you're in the ocean. 
looking for that single species of interest, which is rare, which is tiny, which is hard to see, and the ocean is immense. And we keep searching. We are on the bottom, slowly screening the bottom of the ocean, trying to find jellyfish. Uh, the colony that resembles Turidopsis, Dorney. Now, despite this jellyfish's small size, it has an ability that has huge consequences. And I mean huge. The common name is the mortal jellyfish. The immortal jellyfish is the only animal on this planet that we know of that has this particular incredible power. They are hydrozoans, first of all. And so hydrozoans, all of them have a, a complex life cycle. When the season is right, the colony produces the jellyfish as a little bud of the polyp. The jellyfish grows to a decent size and then it touches from the mother colony. That is the sexual stage. So it produces the eggs or the sperms, the gametes, sets them free in the water, and then they, they fuse the in, in the water and they form the, the larva, the planula. And so you close the life cycle, polyp, jellyfish, larva, polyp, and you keep going. What happens to the jellyfish after it releases the gametes? It dies. Now, Turidopsis escapes this fate, and so if you try to kill the jellyfish of Turidopsis, you starve it, you cut it, you stress it in many different ways, it doesn't die. It forms a ball and it settles on the bottom. And the ball will stay as such for 24 hours. And there is some reorganization there that goes on. And the ball then transforms itself into the polyp. Instead of dying, going in one direction where all the jellyfish go, to revert and rejuvenate in the polyp. And the colony, when the season is right, can produce hundreds of new jellyfish. So you can see how from one jellyfish that doesn't die, then you can get hundreds new from this reverse development. But with great power. Turidopsis dorni, we show that it's an invasive species. Uh, we call it a silent invader because it's everywhere. These tiny looming medusae though originally residents of Caribbean waters have had more than a lifetime to get around. They're infamous ship hoppers, floating from Panama to Spain and Florida to Japan. It's very successful in spreading around the world. A handful of specialized researchers like Dr. Miglietta have spent decades trying to understand the genomic mystery behind the immortal jellyfish. And so the first step where we wanted to start was, okay, let's have a look at the cyst. The cyst is this unique life cycle stage. And so what's happening in the cyst at the genomic level? And so we followed the gene expression patterns of the entire life cycle. And uh, we identified a cluster of genes. that are turned on in the cyst. But there is also the process of cellular transdifferentiation that is occurring in the cyst. It's the ability of an adult cell uh, to become something else. And the other thing that makes cellular transdifferentiation hard to study is that in those animals where it occurs, it happens in weeks. Now, in Turidopsis, you have cellular transdifferentiation that happens in 24 hours. 
And so are they using the same genes as other triatops in different ways? Or is a mutation, probably multiple mutations, or there is a difference in the genome that allows triatopsis to gain this new function, to evolve this new trait of immortality? And so that is our next step. What triatopsis can give us is a system where we can understand those processes. Transdifferentiation aging, uh, our DNA repair, and that it can help us focus on some aspects of, of genetics. And so my idea is that we should dive in. Even though humanity's footprint on the planet is considerable, we continue to uncover new species, adaptations, and ecologies in the deep abysses of our planet's oceans. The dense foliage of its jungles and the brisk expanses of its tundras. But don't take my word for it. Let's bring biologist Dr. Brian Arnold back to see what he thinks. Brian, as an evolutionary biologist, what are some examples of mutations and adaptations that have fascinated you? And have any of them been things that we as humans might try to tap into? Personally, I am most impressed by bacteria. They have been around for 3.5 billions of years. They were some of the first organisms on this planet. I think they're going to be the last before the sun explodes and engulfs us all. So, yeah, I mean, you know, mutations are great, but bacteria are able to pick up entire genes from their environment. It's this phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer. It happens amongst all species across the bacterial kingdom. One particular example I love, there was this group that was studying the gut microbiome in mice. And what they observed was when they introduced a new strain to this gut, which is before any mutations occurred in this new bacterial strain they were introducing to the gut, the bacteria would pick up this gene or set of genes from the environment, from the bacteria that are already present there, that allows it to better survive and reproduce in this environment by utilizing unique carbon resources in the mouse gut that wasn't present in the previous environment that this bacterium came from. So the bacteria are able to get, you know, wholesale entire genes or sets of genes and genetic pathways and quickly evolve new traits, again, on a timescale that is shorter than waiting for a mutation to arise. So if we're thinking about the X-person equivalent of this, is it sort of like Rogue who can reach into other superheroes and grab their powers, only in this case, Rogue is also then taking that and putting it into her genome? That's a fascinating analogy. Yes, it is absolutely like that. <laughs> I, I wish I wish we had I that superpower. You called it fascinating, but not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just the ability to kind of have big dramatic changes immediately. I mean, these are the kind of changes that are great if the environment changes very dramatically, and it allows bacteria to colonize kind of every nook and cranny of this planet. How could people use this? How might these kinds of mutations relate to us? So uh, there are a variety of ways horizontal gene transfer might occur. One involves 
you know, the bacteria running into the DNA and taking it up. But another version of gene transfer is mediated by what are called bacteriophage. These are, these are bacterial viruses. And so what bacteriophage do is they look like little spaceships. They're terrifying. They land on the surface of a bacterial cell and they inject their genome. And then they use the molecular machinery present in the bacterial cell to basically replicate its own genome, package those into new virus particles, and then the bacteria explodes, releasing hundreds of new bacteriophage. And so what happens is occasionally when uh, a bacteriophage infects a bacterial genome, its genome gets integrated into the bacterial genome, such that the bacteria can now use the genes present from the phage. So to get back to your question, how can this horizontal gene transfer impact human society? Well, you know, there's this problem of antibiotic resistance among bacteria. And if someone has a surgery and they get an infection with a bacteria that's resistant to many of the first-line antibiotics, that can be a very dire situation. This kind of field that's been emerging is called phage therapy. So in theory, if antibiotics aren't working, you could engineer a phage to go in there, a kind of weapon of sorts that we might use to infect the bacteria and kill them that way. I want to come back to the tiny but mighty immortal jellyfish. What thoughts cross your mind when you think about them and and what do they have to teach us? Yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. On the organism level, it's immortal. But on a cellular level, there's a lot of turnover. Do they kind of accumulate mutations? I mean, even though they're able to go through these what seem mm-hmm. like birth-death cycles? You know, how, how, yeah. how many can they go through? I'm also curious about that. I was reading, and it does sound like they can accumulate mutations. And I was wondering, at what point is that a problem? Our immortal jellyfish has me thinking about this uh, one thought experiment, which is called the ship of Theseus dilemma. That goes a little something like this. The ship of Theseus takes us back to a story from Greek mythology. The ship's wood rotted over time, so to keep it in standing order, builders would replace the old planks with newer and stronger timber. But the question is, if centuries proceed and piece by piece the ship's wood is replaced, is it even the original ship of Theseus? Or is it something different entirely? Over to you, Brian. Uh, When it comes to our immortal jellyfish, it replaces its cells regularly to undergo its transition from adult medusa to polyp, then back again. So is our jellyfish a ship of Theseus? Well, I guess, you know, with the caveat that there may not be a right answer, it's totally a different jellyfish. I mean, if it's composed of completely different cells that were never there, you know, I guess from from a cellular perspective, it's a very different organism consisting of cells that were not present when it was originally born. Right. But doesn't that happen for us too, right? Our cells are sort of constantly changing, right? Like we're, we're getting new cells and, and they're moving. Are we hashtag we are all Theseus? Uh, great question. But, but if, if that were the case, then yeah. But like psychologically, I feel like I'm a 
completely different person every five years. Right. So Or every minute. But what about the jellyfish? What about or, them psychologically? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I want to interview the jellyfish. That would be great to know what they're thinking, if, if anything. We asked the same question to Dr. Maria Pia Miglietta as well. I think still the same jellyfish in the sense that the DNA duplicates genetically is the same animal. It's duplicating its genome and it's, it's the same identical animal, except for the mutations that will occur, um, that will accumulate with, with the, the changes. How many mutations occur? What we're seeing is one of the, of the elements that are active in the seas is DNA repair. In the seas, there is a lot of effort going into cleaning up the mutations. Okay, And so to me, it doesn't matter how many regeneration cycles the jellyfish will go on, it's still the same. The reason I brought up some random Greek philosophy is for one important point on our theme around mutations, and that is to round us out on this idea of adaptation and change. From elephants to jellies, antibodies and bacteria... How do we need to view mutations going forward as part of our biology? Our cells and DNA, they change and grow, but we are the same person, or are we? So what's your perspective as an evolutionary biologist? Personally, I think about life from a cellular perspective. Bacteria are single cells. Higher organisms like humans are kind of this beautiful collaboration of of single cells. So, you know, as DNA replicates, it makes errors. These give rise to mutations. I mean, if if we perfected DNA replication such that all of our cells were clones, all of our children were clones, then there would be no genetic variability to kind of adapt to new environments, to adapt to any kind of like global climate change, etc. So having these enzymes as imperfect is kind of a very good thing. So this imperfection is in some sense a perfection. I mean, that sounds kind of cheesy, but in some sense, you know, it allows organisms to persist over time by changing their genetic content. Dr. Brian Arnold, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. It was very fun. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. My guest today has been data scientist and evolutionary biologist, Dr. Brian Arnold from the University of Princeton. You can also check out some of the really cool work he's doing with the Shane campbell Staten Group by going to campbellstaten.com to learn more. You can get the hit new genomics-inspired superhero action figures today. Batwoman and her horde of crisper Christmas island critters. The marvelous mantis and her punching speed. And the incredible cute as he shifts from solid to liquid. And of course... Wait, what do you mean we're halting production? What am I supposed to do with 600 boxes of action figures? Now you listen to me, buddy. Wait, wait, wait. 
You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of the previous ones and follow the show to catch new ones coming up. And the education team at Genome BC has compiled resources as well as learn-along activity sheets for each episode. Check them out in our show description and on genomebc.ca. Message us on Twitter at GenomeBC and let us know what you think. Join us on our season finale of Nice Genes. I think this case and many others that followed showed that we are identifying perhaps a new type of criminal one who perpetrates a very violent crime one time and then appears to have never done it again, fades right back into society, seems to be this normal person with a relatively normal life, is capable of this type of violent crime. I investigate one of North America's longest standing cold case mysteries that's finally found some answers through, you guessed it, genomics. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Until then, Medusa E, you later. <laughs>